Let me have you turn to Titus chapter 3. As you're turning there, I'll just uh, remind you that we're coming to the end of this uh, year-long study of this very densely packed, tight little letter. And what you have in one sense in verses uh, 3 through 11 is a sort of a summary of what's gone on in the first two chapters or so. And then you have some final remarks that are made in verses 12 and following. So as we come to this At the end of this letter, and as we come again to this passage, what I want to do this morning is uh, try to draw from what is a summary, the the summary lessons, if you will, from this letter of Paul to Titus. So rather than just reading verses 9 through 11, I'd like to have the whole passage before us. So begin with me at verse 3 of Titus chapter 3, as we read God's word given by the Lord, through Paul, to Titus and to us. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is God's word to us, his people. Let's pray together. Lord, please uh, help us to, to crystallize in our own minds what you, what you delivered to Paul, what you through him delivered to Titus and to the Christians on the island of Crete and what you're delivering to us today. Lord, give us your spirit to understand these things and to lay hold of these things and to cling to these things. Open our eyes, ready our hearts, and then, Lord, engage our wills so that we might do the good things that you would have us do for the sake of Jesus, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Three things, uh, I think, that uh, we can take away from this study of Titus, three basic uh, Lessons, if you will, three sort of summary statements. Here's the first of them. Truth exists, but not alone. Truth exists, but not alone. The second, gospel truth causes trouble. Gospel truth causes trouble. And then the third one, gospel truth is simple, or the gospel is simple. 
Truth exists, but not alone. Well, what is that all about? What am I saying when I say that? Well, take, take the truth part of it first. Truth exists. Everybody believes that truth exists. Everybody believes that. They really do. We made this point during the Advent season, looking at John chapter 1. But I want to make the point again, uh, and I want to make it again because you all rub shoulders with people who don't view the world the way we view the world and don't see the world the way we as Christians see the world. And in a group this size, there may be some folks who are struggling to figure out how it is that Christians see the world and understand the world. Well, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, I think we need to understand, need to have clear in our minds that everybody believes that truth exists. Everybody does. Even people who don't believe that truth exists believe that truth exists. And that's why they write books and articles and engage you in conversations trying to persuade you to see the world the way they see the world. They believe that at least one truth exists, and that is the truth that no truth exists. But it's still a truth that they want you to embrace. And they want you to order your life according to it. Everybody believes that there is truth somewhere. And whenever someone embraces the idea that truth exists, inevitably and invariably they will seek to persuade you that their way of viewing the world is the right way to view the world. We're in the midst of a presidential campaign. you got candidates all over the place. I mean, they're spending boatloads of money. Why are they doing that? They're doing that to try to persuade people that the way they see the world is the right way to see the world. I'll guarantee you that almost all of those people, all of those candidates, if you ask them about religious things, will say, well, truth is a matter of personal preference. It's a subjective and personal thing. But they can't work that out. They can't live consistently with that. Look, you've got to understand, any time a person opens his or her mouth to say anything at all, beneath all of it is something theological. There is a view of the world. There is an understanding of how life ought to be lived, about how things ought to be ordered. And everybody, whether it's in a presidential campaign or over a cup of coffee in the local diner, everybody wants everybody else to see the, way, the world the way, they want, the way they see the world. Now the question becomes, who's going to be the final arbiter of the disputes? I just, I think this is critical. I mean, maybe I'm the only guy on the planet who thinks this, but I'm going to try and persuade you that the way I see the world is the right way to see the world. <laughs> I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, okay? But you've got to ask the question, when people have a conflict about the nature of reality and how life is to be lived, there's got to be some place to go, some final court of appeal, somebody outside or something outside my head and outside your head, outside your subjective experience, outside my subjective experience and personal preferences, who will be an arbiter of this debate. And the first thing that Christianity says is that truth does exist and that there is an arbiter for the debate. The word that Paul uses in this text is the word appeared. It's in verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior 
appeared. Now, what's so distinctive about that? What's the unique thing about that? Well, if you talk to a Jewish person, a Jewish person will say that God spoke to the prophets. If you talk to an Islamist, the person will say that God spoke to the prophet Muhammad. If you talk to a Buddhist, the Buddhist will say, I've gained some insight into the nature of the world and how life ought to be lived. And if you follow this path, then you'll achieve whatever it is that's at the end of the path. You talk to anybody, you'll get some sort of an answer like that. Christianity is the only religion that says more than God spoke to me or I gained an insight. Christianity says that God didn't just speak, didn't just give people insights, but came into the world. God came into the world. God came into the arena of the debate. God came into the restaurant where there is a smorgasbord of ideas and he stood in the restaurant and he said, I am the truth. I am God in the flesh. I am the word, the eternal word who has become flesh. If you want to know what is true, listen to me because I am that truth. Not just that I know it, not just that I have insight into it, I am it. And Paul is affirming the same thing in this verse. It's a very significant word when he says, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He's just using different language. He's approaching it in a slightly different way, but he's saying the very same thing that John said. The word, the eternal word, God himself became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. The question I believe everybody has to ask himself or herself is how do I know that the things that I believe really are true? There's a whole lot at stake here, folks. Who God is, what he's like, how he deals with me, what salvation is. There's a whole lot at stake here. This is not about whether we're in a recession. This is not about who's going to be the next president. This is about eternity. And you need a fixed place. You need a court of appeal. You need a final authority to go to to take all of your convictions about life and reality, measure them against that fixed point, measure them against that court of appeal to determine whether what you believe really is in fact true. And God has come into the world. That's what Christianity affirms. And it seems to me any reasonable thinking person who's got an eternity stretched out before him. That's a long time. That is a very long time. Anybody who's got an eternity stretched out before him ought to take very seriously the convictions that he or she has. And ought to ask, how do I know that these things are true? And Christianity says, not that God spoke to a prophet, though he did that, not that prophets have insight into the way life ought to be ordered and what reality is, but that reality came into the midst of our reality. That truth came into the midst of our debates about truth. To act as a final arbiter. And the scriptures come to us from that source of truth. And this is the place we go. This is what Christianity claims. That God has come in. He's spoken. He's preserved what he's spoken. He's come consummately, finally, in Jesus Christ. There's a place to go when it comes to debates about truth. That's the first half. It isn't just that truth exists, and we need to take this very, very seriously. 
it seems to me, as a church. I need to as a Christian minister. You need to, to do it as a, minister, as, a, as a Christian yourself. Truth exists, but it doesn't exist alone, which is to say that truth is not disconnected from life. That's what Paul has been talking about throughout this letter. There's a relationship between truth and life. In the first chapter, Paul says that he is a servant of God. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith, the objective content. That's what he means there. Not the subjective experience of faith, not the trusting aspect of faith, but the objective content of faith. He is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge that leads to godliness. Their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Folks, truth doesn't exist in a vacuum. It doesn't exist simply as a bunch of propositions to be embraced with the brain. But the truth of the gospel is something that gets connected to life. You see it here in the text we're looking at. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. What things? The things that he's been talking about in verses 3 through 8. The whole nature of salvation, what it is that it doesn't have anything to do with your works, your righteousness, your good deeds, but this salvation, and this again is a distinctive of the Christian faith. I hope you understand this and see this. This salvation is all a function of God's mercy. It is because of his mercy. It is accomplished through his grace in the person of his son. Those are the things that he wants Titus to insist upon. Those are the things that are trustworthy things. And what flows out of it again, verse 8, so that those who have believed in God, trusted in God, that's the subjective Faith in God, use of the word in the text. Those who have trusted in God and in the salvation he has provided for them in Christ may be careful to devote themselves to good works. See, the gospel, the objective content, the truth of the gospel, the truth is there, but it is not a truth that is detached from life. It impacts life. It touches life. It touches life at every single point of life. And you see it in the life of Jesus. You see it in the life of Jesus. You remember Luke 24, after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus comes to a couple of disciples who are walking along the road to Emmaus and they're downcast and they're brokenhearted. Why are they brokenhearted? They're brokenhearted because Jesus, in their minds, to their minds, has disappeared. He died. Something strange happened to his body. They're not sure what happened. But they're downcast. They're heartbroken because the hope of Israel proved not to be the hope of Israel. And Jesus comes to them on the road and says, Hey, guys, what's up? That's a very loose paraphrase. Samen. You know, what's going on? What's happening? And they say, are you the only guy on the planet who doesn't know what's happened here? The only person in, in Jerusalem, in all of Israel, who doesn't understand? And they go on to say, this is what happened. Well, Jesus, we thought he was the hope of Israel. We thought he was the prophet of God. We thought he was all this stuff. But he died, and they can't find his body. 
And Jesus rebukes them lovingly, gently, I'm sure, but rebukes them. Takes them through a Bible study from Genesis all the way through Malachi to show that he is the one who is promised. But they had said of him, which the Bible study confirmed, that he was a prophet mighty in word and in deed. The ministry of Jesus was a ministry both of truth and life. Truth connected to life. Truth manifesting itself in a particular kind of life. A life that is full of compassion and mercy and kindness. You look at Jesus commissioning his disciples. You see this in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 12. They emulate Jesus in his ministry of word and deed. What did Jesus do? He came into this world and he preached, but he also healed the sick and he delivered the demon-possessed and he bound up the broken. He ministered to people in need. And when the disciples went out two by two in Mark chapter 7, they emulated Jesus. They did the very same thing. Truth connected to life, to a way of living Truth that makes a difference as it reaches out and touches people. You see it there in Mark chapter 7. You see it in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Snapshots of the church where the church is devoted to the apostles' teaching and they're devoted to doing good. And you see it in Paul. You see it in Paul's life. First in Jesus, then his disciples, then the church. You see it in Paul. Paul didn't just go around preaching and teaching in synagogues. You read 2 Corinthians 11, and you read all of the things that he suffered, all of the things that he endured, you realize that the truth he proclaimed had an enormous impact upon the way he lived his life. You read the Thessalonian epistles, and you see Paul reminding the Thessalonians how he was among them. As a mother cares for her children, so we were among you. That's what you see in Titus. That's a lesson that you extract, a kind of a first lesson from this letter. There is truth, but it is truth connected to life. Truth not alone. Truth that makes a difference in the way people live. And here's the surprising thing about this. This truth, this life, truth and life, truth that touches life in this particular way, the way you see it touching life through Jesus through the disciples, through the church, in the life of Paul. Here's the surprising thing. This truth and life causes trouble. It causes trouble. It's disruptive. It causes conflict. It causes contention. It creates issues. You can make this point fairly quickly. If you just think about Paul's letter to Titus and what is going on on the island of Crete, clearly, the arrival of the gospel in Crete has caused problems. It's disrupted things. It has challenged things. It has created some contention. Again, if you go back to Jesus and you look at Jesus, you see it in his life as well. It's so striking to read the gospels and to read them closely and to see that people react to Jesus in one of two ways. They either love him or hate him. There's, there's nothing neutral about it. There's nothing neutral about it. 
Read Luke chapter 4, where Jesus preached his first recorded sermon in his hometown, in the local synagogue, in the place where he grew up. Verse 22 tells us that those who heard him, he had read from the scroll of Isaiah, and he began to teach and expound and expand and enlarge upon that passage in Isaiah 61. And as he brought his sermon to a conclusion, as he brought it to a close, he said, I tell you the truth, today this word is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And early on in Jesus' sermon, verse 22 tells us that they were amazed at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. The gracious words that were falling from his lips. But you read further, and by the time you get to verse 28, all of the people, and this is the quote, this is the verbatim, all the people were furious at him. They were furious at him so furious that they drove him out of the synagogue. They drove him to the brow of a hill, wanting to cast him down from that hill to kill him, to remove him from their presence because he posed a threat to them, because he turned their lives upside down, because he leveled everything. So striking. You see the same thing later, Mark chapter 6, when he returns to Nazareth. He preaches again. He ministers among these people. He heals people. He restores people. And verse 1 says, that passage in Mark, that many who heard him were amazed at him. They were staggered. They were stunned at what they saw. And then they start asking questions. Who is this guy? Isn't this the son of Mary? That in itself is something to reflect upon. In this culture, everything was patrilineal. Genealogies, associations, all of that stuff came from the father of the one under consideration. Isn't this the son of Mary? Meaning, we don't know who your father is. Your background is suspect. You see, initially they're amazed, but the more he speaks and the more he teaches and more he confronts them, with themselves and exposes their unbelief. That's what's going on in Mark. The more he exposes them, no matter who they are, whether it's the mayor or somebody who's just come in from the fields, a day worker, no matter who they are, while initially they're amazed by verse 3, they take offense at him. Initially, they speak of the gracious words and then they want to kill him. Initially, they're amazed at him. But by verse 3, they take offense at him. The incarnation of truth and goodness, the incarnation of truth and life, compassion, mercy, kindness, he causes conflict. People either love him or hate him, and you see it repeatedly in the Gospels. Let me ask you, let me ask you, when the gospel comes to you in the particular form and fashion in which it comes to you as it's condensed, as it's so tightly packaged in verses 3 through 8, how do you like it? Everybody likes at some level verses 4 through 8. Nobody. Nobody likes verse 3. For we ourselves 
Paul is including himself. You know, it, it's so interesting. When you read Paul's letters, you see it in Titus. You go to Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul reminds the Ephesians that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Dead. Not sleepy. Not weak. Not tired. But dead. Lifeless. Incapable of anything. Paul turns and shifts the emphasis away from the Ephesians to include himself. himself. We, we were like this. You and I both. He does the same thing here as he writes to Titus. He knows that Titus is going to say this to these Cretans. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, captives, slaves, imprisoned to passions and pleasures, lusts and desires, passing our days, meaning living out our lives with malice and envy, hated and being hated by others, hating and being hated by others. How do you like that? I guarantee you, if you pick up that old book of Dale Carnegie's, How to Win Friends and Influence People, you're going to have Dale Carnegie Carnegie discouraging you from saying these kinds of things. You don't say these things to people if you want to win their loyalty, if you want to win their affections. But this is why Jesus was offensive. This is why people took offense at him because he turned everything upside down. He exposed not only the broken hearts, but the corrupt hearts of people to whom he was speaking. Paul did the same thing. And the church has done the same thing throughout its history. The gospel causes trouble. It did in Crete. It did when Jesus preached it. It did wherever Paul preached it. And it does it for this reason, this very simple reason. It's sort of implicit in what I've said. It does it for this very simple reason. The truth, the gospel, is simple. And it's simple in this sense. It's simple because it's all about God and it's not about you. The gospel makes an assault on my pride. The gospel makes an assault upon my self-reliance. The gospel makes an assault upon every effort, every attempt to establish my own righteousness. And I can seek to base my own righteousness on any number of things. Here's what's going on. When Paul reminds Titus, admonishes Titus regarding the basics of the gospel, verses 3 through 8, that people really are these things in their hearts. We can dress it up. We can pretend. We can clothe ourselves with whatever, everything from clothing to accomplishments to experiences to knowledge in our heads. We can try to impress God and we can try to impress other people with what we are, what we have, what we do, whatever. But when the gospel comes, it dismantles all of that stuff. Paul is stressing that with Titus. And what's happening here is Paul tries to remind him of these basic and core truths. He tells him as well 
to admonish, to correct, to rebuke those who would seek to add anything to the perfect and sufficient and exclusive salvation that God has accomplished in Christ. That's what's going on in the island of Crete. When Paul tells Titus in these verses 9 through 11 to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, there are two substantive things here. We don't know the details of these things, but there are two substantive things, genealogies and contentions about the law. And what was happening is that these people were in the church, these people who were interested in genealogies, pedigrees, the pedigrees of spiritual people. They were interested in the details of the law and how you sort of parse the law and pull it apart and then apply it. And in effect, what they were doing, in effect, what they were doing was seeking to add something to Jesus. It's Jesus plus It's okay to know that Jesus is the Savior. It's okay to know that he's the Son of God. It's okay to believe that he rose from the dead. But if you want to be a really, really good Christian, if you really want to know you're saved, if you really want to be a part of the club, it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus this particular understanding of the law. It's Jesus plus this particular understanding genealogical tradition. You've got to have this piece of information. You've got to have this particular legal requirement confirmed. Paul's dealing with this all over the place. Everywhere he goes, everybody wants to add something to Jesus. Jesus plus. If you go to Galatia, it's circumcision. Hey, it's great. You believe in Jesus as the Son of God. You believe that he came in the flesh. You believe that he rose from the dead. You believe that he died on the cross for sinners. That's great. But, you know, really to get into the group, to be a part of the club, you have to be circumcised. It's Jesus plus a moral code, some sort of moral code. Folks, I want to challenge us to wrestle with this. When he goes to Colossae, he preaches the gospel in Colossae. But what are the Colossians like? They like special knowledge. They like special insight. So, hey, okay. You believe Jesus came in the flesh. You believe he died. You believe you're, that's wonderful. But you know, to get into the inner circle, you've got to have this little special piece of knowledge. It's Jesus plus knowledge. Go to Corinth. What are the Corinthians all about? Hey, they're all about ecstatic experiences. They're all about having a quiver in the liver. I've used that <laughs> phrase in other places. Okay? They're all about spiritual gifts. They're all about phenomena and stuff. And what are they saying? Hey, if you don't have this particular experience, you can't really be part of the club. You can believe Jesus came, believe he died, believe he rose, everything else. But if you don't have this experience, you're not really part of the group. Everywhere the gospel goes, it dismantles, it destroys every form of self-righteousness, whether an experience, theological knowledge, or moral behavior. And God through Paul is reminding us that all of that stuff, all of that stuff is vacuous and empty. Is there a content to the gospel? Of course there is. Is there a life that is to be lived? Of course there is. 
Is there occasionally a quiver in the liver? Thank God there is. But when we begin to attach an experience, a behavior, or a particular theological understanding to Jesus and say that is required for entrance into the group, you have violated the gospel, which says he saved us. Not because of anything we've done, not anything we've thought, not any experience we've had, but solely, solely and exclusively and singularly because of his mercy. Accomplished by his grace through which he washed you, you didn't wash yourself. He renewed you and regenerated you. You didn't give birth to yourself. He justified you on the basis of Christ's finished work, appropriated by faith, received, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, with the empty hands of faith, the beggar extending his hands, crying out for food, a food he can't generate himself. And he has given you the hope of eternal life. An eternal life that isn't just an eternal existence, as we've said many times, in some sort of disembodied spiritual realm, but an eternal life that encompasses the whole of life, a new heaven and a new earth where stars shine in the sky, where the waves lap on the shore, where feasts are spread out for people to enjoy. And all of it is given freely. And don't ever attach anything to what God freely gives. Don't do it with him and don't do it with each other. There's a great story. I was reminded of this story. I've got to tell it quickly, but it so summarizes this point. Great story in the Old Testament. It's the story of Nahum. And read it. This is your homework for the week. Go read it this afternoon. Live in it. Dwell in it. It's the story of Naaman, a pagan military commander who is a leper, 2 Kings 5. He hears that there is a God in Israel. You know how he hears that there's a God in Israel? He hears that there's a God in Israel because his armies have made a raid on the northern tribes and they brought back a little teenage girl. Boy, I tell you, there's a sermon in that. What does the little teenage girl do who has been abducted, taken away from her family, probably watched people brutalized by these marauding armies? She preaches the gospel to the leper. The enemy! There's a prophet in Israel. There's a God in Israel. Tell Naaman to go see the prophet in Israel. Go see Elijah. And so Naaman is, I'm sure you know, Naaman packs his bags Stuffs his wallet full of cash. He does. I mean, you can read the story. Ten suits of clothes. Whole bunch of sermons, servants. Bags of gold and silver. Letters from the governor. Okay? He's got a retinue, he's got a resume, and he's got resources. And he goes to find Elijah. You know the story, don't you? He goes to find Elijah, a leprous man military commander, but dying, successful, but dying, rich, but dying, resourced, but dying, resume, but dying. That's every one of us in this room. 
It's every one of us. And he goes to find Elijah, and when he gets to Elijah's house, knocks on the door, and Elijah, this is a great man. Naaman is a great man. And Elijah sends one of his servants to speak to the great man. Tell Naaman, tell Naaman to go down to the Jordan River and dip himself in the Jordan River seven times and his leprosy will be cleansed. And you know how Naaman responds? He's furious. I'm a great man! I have a retinue, I have a resume, and I have resources. Plus I have a sword. I have military might. I'm a great man. I've got credentials. Why doesn't he ask me to do some great thing? Exhibit some great power, some military prowess. No. No, Naaman. You get clean the way everybody else gets clean. Yeah, but what about what about Abaddon and Farpar? I got rivers back home. I can wash in my oh no no no. No. Your own rivers won't work. There's one place for you to wash, Naaman. And you wash like everybody else does. You humble yourself and you wash yourself in the Gospel River. You wash yourself in the Jordan River. You identify yourself. You drown yourself. You immerse yourself in the one who himself would come and who would be baptized in that river and who would be a substitute for you impaled upon a cross taking away your sins so that you can be clean. That's the gospel. Giving up every sense of self-righteousness, whether an experience, a moral code, or theological knowledge, and abandoning myself to the muddy Jordan where the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Prince of Peace, would himself be baptized, identifying with his people, so that he might go to the cross for his people. Go immerse yourself in that river and you will come away clean. Clean, washed, renewed, justified with the hope of everlasting life. Don't add anything to the work of Jesus. Just take Jesus. Immerse yourself in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we don't have to do anything except come to you and cast ourselves into the midst of the river of your grace so as to know cleansing. Thank you, Lord, that truth exists. It doesn't exist alone. There's a life that flows out of it. Help us to live that life. Give us grace and courage, Lord when we herald these glad tidings and it causes trouble, whether in our lives or in the lives of those around us. But Lord, help us to keep clear in our minds that you and you alone are what we need. Plus nothing, nothing on our part. And thank you for this infinite mercy, this limitless grace that has saved us and all who will abandon themselves and come to you with the empty hands of faith. Lord Jesus, I pray, if there's anybody in this room who's in that latter category that you've given the heart to hear these things and believe these things and cast themselves upon you, that you might be praised from those lips 
as well as from ours. We pray in your name. Amen. This text is not a text that uh, you may be familiar with. Some of you may be. But I want to encourage you to stand as we sing number 59. The tune is familiar. You know the tune. And it's a wonderful text, forever settled in the heavens. Let's stand together and sing.